This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are Bill Stevens, who is Deputy Coroner of Richland County and a forensic anthropologist, Dr. Steve Smith, who is Research Professor at USC's Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology and a longtime friend and guest yes. on the journal, and Doug Bostick, CEO of the South Carolina Battlefield Trust and also a longtime guest here. And we're all going to discuss a remarkable discovery at Camden's Battlefield. And so... First of all, Steve, why don't we just set the the stage of what happened in August 1780? Wow. At that time, General Horatio Gates, with a about a 3,000-man army, met Lord uh, Charles Cornwallis with about 2,500 men on a battlefield in the middle of a pine forest north of Camden. And it, it was a horrible defeat. Almost the entire American force was either killed, wounded, or deserted. They or were, became prisoners. Yeah. So they, they were all, basically, they were all casualties. Correct. All right. And just for a little bit of background, Charleston had fallen in May to the British. And what was left of the regular army, the Continentals, was commanded by Baron de Cobb, more or less in North Carolina. Well, Congress thought that needed a real hero to come down to save the day, so they selected Horatio Gates, also seen as the hero of the Battle of Saratoga, which, of course, he wasn't. It was really Benedict Arnold. Right, correct. So anyway, Horatio Gates comes down, and the idea is to move into South Carolina to confront Cornwallis, who has heard about this new army, so he's moving out. And de Cobb said, you know, the sensible thing is to go over towards Charlotte, and go through friendly territory where we can get food for our troops and our horses and uh, be ready for battle. And Horatio Gates, who was listening to Thomas Sumter, said, oh, no, let's just go straight down. So they went through territory where there was no food, no fodder. Uh, What food they had, they had green corn and molasses, which by the time the troops got to Camden, they had severe diarrhea. Correct. Among other things. But it just so happened that the armies, they had out scouts, but they just bumped into each other late in the day. Uh, 2 a.m. And then they decided to back off. Gates set his line and Cornwallis attacked and went right at the left side of the line where there were militia, mostly North Carolina militia, and they caved. And that enabled Cornwallis to turn the American flank, and it was a military disaster. Okay, so it's a terrible defeat. There are dead bodies everywhere, and as often happened in the 18th century, nobody was worried about getting somebody down six feet. In some cases, usually they left them on the battlefield. That would not have been that unusual. So I'll let y'all take the story from there. Well, yeah, there would have been several ways in which uh, the bodies would have uh, either deteriorated or been buried. Uh, Perhaps prisoners buried some of them. Uh, Perhaps friends buried others. Certainly, we have one uh, member of the 71st uh, Highlander Regiment, and he was buried quite deeply um, and formally laid out as you would so you're talking about the British being buried. What about the Americans who were killed? Now, the Americans, again, were would have been buried perhaps by prisoners. I think some of them probably were not buried. Uh, they lay on the battlefield unburied. Others were buried uh, later probably by citizens who came by. From the archaeological evidence we have of the burials that we've recovered, we've seen all those different sorts of um, examples of burial uh, practices. Uh, we most of the Americans were buried shallowly, sometimes just below the surface. Uh, others were buried in small mass graves. We we have one location which five individuals. We have another location with three individuals, and another location with two individuals, and they were thrown in and piled on top of each other, 
in some cases uh, where there was five people that were uh, found together, we noticed that their legs were straight out. So that must have been mean that they were buried very shortly after the battle. The others, this is kind of uh, gruesome, but they displayed splayed legs and arms, uh, which would indicate that they laid on the battlefield for maybe a day or two before they were reburied and they had slightly decomposed. And and South Carolina, August. Yes, it would not have taken long. Yeah. Okay. Why were you exploring the Camden battlefield? I mean, usually you're off looking for Francis Marion. (laughs) That's right. Had, Had... had the Battlefield Trust asked you to begin archaeological work at Camden? What brought you there? To Because Camden's not a new site. No. Uh, but actually, back in the late 90s, my colleague James Legg was asked by the Catawba Valley Land Trust to try to carve out what he thought the location of the core battlefield was. And he defined about 300 acres and then— In the early 2000s, we received, we being the Institute of Archaeology, received three separate grants from the Palmetto Conservation Foundation to try to better define the battlefield. Uh, And in the course of that work, we interviewed relic collectors who had been there back in the 70s on forward into the 90s. And as a result of that and a result of our work over the years, we had identified six locations where we thought there might be remains. We later confirmed that on three of those. In the course of the work, the South Carolina Battleground Trust decided that they would be better preserved and protected if those remains had been would be recovered and reburied. And in the course of that work, we came up with what we thought was, in one case, one individual turned out to be five individuals. So by the time we got done, we had 14 uh, different individuals. Okay. Doug, you want to talk about the Battleground Trust's role in this? Yes, sir. Um, so the Battleground Trust is has been working on the Camden Battlefield, redesigning interpretation, cutting in trails. It's part of the Liberty Trail project. And when we were made aware of the possibility of bodies on the battlefield. And we talked with Jim and Steve both about the condition and what they suspected. We felt like at the point they believed that there were six bodies on the battlefield, that was the critical mass that we needed to do something about. And so we decided to excavate uh, the bodies. We contracted with SCIA, the Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, to conduct that work. And our concern was that, the, as Steve mentioned, the bodies were extremely shallow, most of them, and some had been damaged by farming in the early 20th century. Others had been damaged by timbering. Other bodies had been disturbed by collectors, and we felt like that these men deserved a, a better treatment than that, and these bodies deserved to be protected in perpetuity. And so we set on a course to contract with Skia for the removal of the remains. As Steve mentioned, six bodies turned into 14. Uh, but nonetheless, we were committed that anybody found during this project, we would forensically study the remains and then reinter them in the same location in which they were recovered, but doing so in sealed vaults to protect them and buried at a traditional depth that we do burials today. And that way we were confident the bodies would not be further disturbed. All right. And at this point, you just, they were bodies that made no difference whether they were, you didn't know whether they were American or British, right? Correct. We did not know. And, And that frankly made no difference to us. We felt like everybody deserved to, be treated honorably, regardless of what army they served. All right. And I think, Bill, this may be where you come in. When did they bring the first body to you to uh, examine? Based on past partnerships with the state archaeologist, I'm in a Ph.D. program with Steve, which which, uh, which I became acquainted with him. We, we're all familiar with each other. So uh, Steve and Jim reached out to the Richland County Coroner's Office, and we got approval from my boss, Coroner Rutherford, to, that we could assist in recovery and study of the remains from Camden. 
our department is three anthropologists. We're one of a handful of coroners in the state who have forensic anthropologists on staff. And I became involved from from the start of excavations. My background at University of Georgia took me to Guatemala after the 40-year civil war with my mentor, Dr. Carr Burns. And um, so I had some familiarity with excavation of mass graves and um, conflict recovery, forensic archaeology. Okay. Was it you who first identified that you had six, I mean, 14 instead of six? Or would it be? The process was that we knew where the locations of, of these six individuals were. So we began with those and we continued to conduct field work as we were doing the recovery. But the process was that the archaeologists came in and exposed the burials using archaeological techniques. And then we pedestaled a lot of the burials for the forensic team to come in. They, they were in the field with us, and they did the actual recovery of the human remains. Actually, they're continuing to do that excavation because we did a lot of pedestaling of the bone because it was so frail that we— undercut it, took the uh, the materials and the dirt back to the lab uh, at the Richland County Coroner's Office, where they're right now being continually to being excavated and processed and preserved so that they'll be in good shape for reburial. Okay. So the bones are now in your lab. What are you going to do? I mean, they're, th- these old bones, I mean, obviously you can't identify that they were, you know, my great-grandfather's, but what are you be what are you testing for and how are you going to test them okay yep we are kind of still in the processing and, and cleaning of the remains stage x-raying freeing of the soil matrix as steve said and uh, this should take another few weeks we have assistance from skia and from uh, the institute of archaeology and department of natural resources archaeologists once they're clean we'll do the things that we normally do to establish what we call a biological profile of an individual, uh, which is for forensic purposes, usually sex, age, race, living stature, health and disease, unique features. So we're limited in this case by preservation of the remains due due to um, variable conditions within the uh, battlefield, soil acidity, depth, and as, as Steve said, agricultural practices. But we hope we can gather to say the age um, of an individual. Preliminarily, we have about 20% of these 14 men are teenagers, let's say 16 to 19. Haven't done all the measurements. We can't even say that they're all men at this point. You know, you, you can be surprised by what the skeletons tell about about history. Okay, but uh, in, in some of the initial publicity that came out, you identified several as being natives of particular areas of, of England, right? We have a 71st Highlander, so he's more than likely <laughs> okay. from Scotland. Most of the soldiers are probably going to be Marylanders or Delaware from the two different brigades. So how long will this process take, Bill? Well, we have uh, several lines of inquiry going on. Dr. Carlina Delacova is a partner on the project, and she is looking at soil samples with a protocol for parasite testing. So given the historical background of the suffering these men endured on the march and prior to the battle, uh, she will be testing the soil to see if it can tell us about the parasite burden these men may have endured. We are also going to partner with genetic genealogists for the potential of using an ancient DNA lab to um, take DNA from bone and teeth and explore the possibility of linking um, descendants with men from this battlefield oh. sample. Oh, this is exciting. I'm serious. It sounds like yeah. a TV drama. I don't want to it, be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this will be ongoing and it, it'll take a while, months to years, Walter, I think. Walter, we have uh, just in the field, we've noticed um, some impact uh, from trauma, battlefield trauma, such as uh, one of the young men was had a shattered spine and the musket ball was still there. So, so you literally found the musket ball in. Yeah. Yes. That part of uh, the process of the X-ray, we're lucky to have a portable X-ray. So all these blocks of soil, be they a skull, a spine, uh, or whatnot, we're we're X-raying carefully to document the association of a metal artifact with a part of the body. So. All right. Did you find other artifacts besides that, uh, Steve? Very little. We have we have buttons, and the buttons, of course, are are critical in identifying who they were. For instance, the 71st guy had 71st regimental buttons on him. The Continentals have USA buttons. 
We had a tin cup that was found in the burial. We speculate that that cup was used perhaps to dig a hole, dig the shallow hole in which the grave was made. Doug, in talking about artifacts, uh, and, and this is history question for you, it would not have been unusual for the bodies to have been stripped by comrades or or locals to take whatever might be usable. I mean, that just was the way it was in the 18th century, right? Yes, sir. We think that's a pretty common practice. So other than buttons, we really did not expect to find many artifacts with the bodies, and as Steve indicated, have not. Let me jump back for a second, Walter, to what Bill was saying. We've had a lot of people ask us about what do we hope to learn from the forensic study of these remains. And Bill did a good job of outlining that. And as people have asked me, I've indicated that we'll probably know a whole lot about these individuals short of their name. But since the story broke and we issued the first press release on Veterans Day, November 11th, we've now had a number of families from Maryland and Virginia contact the Battleground Trust saying that I had my whatever great-grandfather killed at the Battle of Camden. He was a Maryland Continental. Can I submit a DNA test? And so we're letting Bill and his team and Carlina do their work and then see what the possibilities are to do that. But we do have a number of families that are now coming forward saying that, you know, I have an ancestor that was there and killed in the battle. This could get really fascinating. It's clearly a a story that's going to continue. I mean, let's just say Bill, his team gets all of this stuff done within 12 months, which I think is probably still tight. And then you start trying to, people want to be tested. And uh, Doug, that sounds like something the Battleground Trust is going to be involved with for for quite a while, trying to make these links. Yeah, we we probably will be. um, But fortunately, we have excellent partners in this venture with SCIA and the Richland County Coroner's Office. And, you know, we, we feel committed to give these men their just due, to rebury them with full military honors and do everything we can by them. And if that includes actually identifying them, it would be a privilege and an honor to be part of that process. Gentlemen, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Doug Bostick from the South Carolina Battleground Trust, Steve Smith from USC's Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, and Bill Stevens, who is Deputy Coroner for Richland County and a forensic anthropologist. We're talking about remains found on 18th century battlefield outside of Camden. Okay, gentlemen, I remember a distant historical note. When you start talking about how shallow the graves were, and I tried to find my reference, but I couldn't, but it's stuck in this feeble brain of mine. When George Washington visited that battlefield in the 1790s, he commented on the bones. I think it was mostly horses that was still strewn about the Camden battlefield. I suspect that not, oh, maybe 10 to 15 percent of the, of the people that died in the battle were buried. I think most of them were lay on the battlefield uh, and were unfortunately taken away by animals, uh, pigs and wolves and coyote and that sort of thing. Well, certainly in the, in the partisan warfare that was taking place in the upcountry right after this, letting people stay where they fell, that was just it, particularly when the partisans carried the day, whether it's Thickety Ford or Cedar Springs, and they just left the Tories and the British lying there. Right. At King's Mountain, you know, it became famous for being a dangerous place after the battle because so many wild pigs had uh, ravaged the the, uh, remains that uh, they became uh, unfearful of people and uh, were were dangerous. So you didn't go near King's Mountain after the battle for a couple of years. Well, and after Huck's defeat, the comment was, for months afterward, carcasses were found in the woods. They didn't talk about soldiers' remains. They were just a, a carcass because, hey, they were Tories. What... Is this going to tell us any more about the battle? I'm curious about Jim Legg's involvement. I thought everybody knew where the Battle of Camden took place, but somehow in the 20th century, when the people started off, they didn't have it quite located where it was. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, relic collectors knew where it was, uh, but the Catawba Valley Ranch Trust wanted particularly to 
preserve the core of the battlefield. So uh, Jim was asked to do that as a result of, the, of his work and the work we've been doing since then, which he's, all, he's also a part of, we've been able to define where the night battle was that occurred at 2 a.m., where the front lines were when, they, when the initial battle began, and uh, how the battle flowed by the archaeological work. We found close to 3,500 artifacts that we found. We have interviewed and seen collections from relic collectors that had boxes of, of lead shot. It was a really fierce battle, especially on the American right flank who stood up against Ralden's people. We don't know what happened there because the smoke from the battle covered over. And of course, many of those people didn't survive to tell the tale. Uh, but we know now from our work just how fierce and, and uh, intense that battle occurred. Now, on the left side of the Americans, of course, there wasn't so much material because, of course, the Virginia militia fled and then the North Carolina militia fled. And then General Gates fled. And then General Gates fled. Oh, that's another story. We forgot to mention it. We, yes. <laughs> yeah. And this is beat up on General Gates Day. That's, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> well, you know, G- Green did not beat up on Gates. Okay. As the battle clearly was going against the Americans, Gates got on his horse and rode to Charlotte, where he changed horses heading for Hillsborough. His soldiers before that time had called him Granny Gates because he was not exactly a dashing dashing military hero. He thought he was, and Congress thought he was. And after Camden, he was called Galloper Gates. And he was then relieved. Washington had not wanted to send Gates down. He'd wanted to send Nathaniel Green down, but Congress intervened because, again, Gates had made himself to be the hero of Saratoga. Um, and he was the goat of Camden. Right. And actually, a lot of the work at Saratoga indicates that uh, Gates spent a lot of his time in the rear. Uh, it was Benedict Arnold and John Stark and those people that really were the frontline uh, commanders at, at, uh, at the various battles of Bennington and Saratoga, that whole campaign. You mentioned people have been collecting and digging on the battlefield for a long time. That can't be done now. At private collectors, it's it's a protected site. Correct. Uh, but before that, folks just went digging on somebody's farm and right, just got permission and went there. Uh, they were either interested in artifacts for commercial value, or they're interested in finding uh, just their own interest in locating battlefields and that sort of thing. But that really sc- screws up your historical interpretation of the battle site, does it, it not? It does take away from what we learn about uh, how the battle unfolded. The new battle lines and detecting the flow, ebb and flow of the battle. Doug, you had mentioned that the, the trust has been putting new signage out and in terms of interpretation. Isn't that where you come in in telling the story of the Battle of Camden? Yes, sir. We're working very closely with uh, Steve and Jim with SCIA to determine how to interpret the battlefield. And the design of those signs have now started. Uh, We'll be vetting that with Jim and Steve to be sure we've got the story down correctly and, and interpreting how the battle unfolded in the places where it did. Uh, So the Battle of Camden is such a large battle. It's a complicated story. And so we want to tell it correctly. And, and we're determined to do that. And that, in part, is really what led to this whole discovery, the good work that Ski has been doing over the years. And that's what um, led to the discovery of the bodies. And that's what then led to the excavation. I would say, Walter, too, you were speaking of uh, Gates. The other thing fascinating about Gates was uh, one first-person account of the battle was uh, written after the war by a British sergeant, last name Lamb. And he also, coincidentally, was in the British Army at Saratoga. And he recorded in his memoirs how they lost to Gates at Saratoga and how thrilled and elated he was that they beat Gates at Camden. So that uh, Saratoga story hung heavy with the British, and uh, some of the same units ended up in the Battle of Camden. 
That's a fascinating primary source, not only involved in the two battles, but the fact that it was an enlisted man's story. Yes. All too often, certainly in the 18th century and actually even into the Civil War, what happened to the common soldier was not much of a concern as opposed to the officer corps. Uh, yeah, and we're, you don't find many memoirs written by NCOs or privates in particular, um, so we're lucky to find the ones that we do. Um, and I'd also say about Gates, there is an, an encounter that occurs at the battle when Gates is fleeing the battlefield. He comes across William Richardson Davy heading toward the battle. And Gates is trying to yell him off, saying, we've got to get out of here. And Davies urging that we need to get to the battlefield and get with the troops. And so that's a fascinating encounter uh, at the time that Gates is fleeing. Well, for our listeners, William Richardson Davy was a great partisan leader, born in South Carolina. He lived in South Carolina, then moved across the border, became very prominent in North Carolina, helped found Chapel Hill, was governor. But when... He died. He asked to be buried back home in South Carolina. I just, for you folks north of the border, I just had to throw that in. Uh, I was going to say. I would also say it's it's interesting how um, history intersects with popular culture. Avi is named in the uh, Tar Heel fight song for the University of, of North Carolina. Well, well, they always get their best from South Carolina. <laughs> Uh, but, and, one, of course, one of the young heroes, partisans with Davy's band was Andrew Jackson. Yep. So he he was on a patrol from, from Davy's unit when he was captured by the British and taken to Camden, where he had that famous incident. That's not part of your archaeology. <laughs> uh, when the English officer commanded him to shine his boots and this scrawny little teenager, Jackson was never a big guy anyway, Scots-Irish teenager sort of clicked his heels and said, sir, I'm a prisoner of war and demand that you treat me as such. Well, that's not the way anybody talked to an English officer and gentleman, certainly not some Scots-Irish scum from South Carolina. So the guy picked up his cavalry saber which, as you know, and I'll let uh, Steve describe how big that thing is, took a swipe at Jackson. Jackson threw his arm up. The saber went through to the bone. It's like he didn't cut his arm off. And he carried that scar and his hatred of the English through his life. It certainly did not help Anglo-American relations when he became (laughs) president. His brother, Robert, was ordered to do the same thing, made the same reply, And he was not quick enough with his arm. He was clipped in the head with the cavalry saber with a wound, and he died an agonizing death from gangrene, suffering about three weeks. So, um, Doug, you want to to describe what the cavalry saber looked like? Well, you know, it's it's not like the uh, dainty uh, ceremonial swords that people think of today. These sabers were uh, gigantic, heavy weapons. And to be hit by a saber was was maybe one of the most fearsome ways to be attacked during the Revolutionary War, perhaps only added by bayonet. Most people think that uh, so many of the injuries are by lead balls, but actually saber and bayonet injuries account for a great majority of, uh, if not a majority, a great preponderance of wounds during the Revolutionary War. And, and Steve, couldn't a, a good swing with a cavalry saber almost decapitate a horse? I mean, that was— uh, Decapitate a man, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Doug, since you mentioned bayonets and, and sabers, that's what most of the men at the Waxhaws uh, that Tarleton killed, they weren't shot, although the movie shows—certain movies shows them being shot. They wouldn't have wasted the lead. They had bayonets and cavalry sabers. And the descriptions—in fact, there are several— uh, Presbyterian clergy descriptions about the wounded that were maimed were, were, were carried to the Waxhaws Presbyterian Church without an arm, without a leg, with multiple wounds uh, from either sabers or, or bayonets. Our limitations with seeing things like bayonet wounds among uh, these sample of men are the, the failure to survive of things like ribs and vertebrae, um, s- smaller, thinner bone 
didn't survive as well. So something more subtle like a bayonet mark stab wound uh, is not visible to us. Okay, um, I, w- I was going to ask that because but, you yeah, know we, of the TV shows. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that nick! It's got to be a <laughs> yeah. Right. We we do have some suggestion finding disarticulated elements like a, an arm bone, a humerus, where it's not supposed to be. Uh, suggests it, it could have been uh, am- amputated and then buried with an individual. Uh, other possibilities are that uh, individuals were disturbed and or buried secondarily, picked up by good Samaritans and placed, bones may have been placed with yeah. individuals. So but, so you, you probably will not be able to determine how a soldier died. With the exception of those in situ musket balls yeah. that, that we've seen. Yeah. 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 I mean, a musket. And, and some blunt force examples, yeah. perhaps yeah. a whack with a, with a yeah. musket yeah. butt. But a musket ball in the in the spine—that's yeah. that's diagnostic. Yeah, <laughs> you can. Bill, you've mentioned some of the challenges. What else are you facing, and what do you think you're finally going to be able to report? Well, it's it's pretty easy to tell that some men were were in their teenage years based on growth plates, which aren't finished fusing. You know, at the end of the knee, the femur, or um, parts of the tibia. So. The adult age estimation is limited by preservation. So those more, more subtle changes that happen regularly throughout your life once you've um, become an adult, and are, then th- are, they're are, not surviving due uh, to preservation. Okay. When, when do you say somebody is no longer a teenager and adult? What what in the bones can you— Yeah, the, well, one of the final growth plates to fuse is the medial clavicle, but um, and, you know, eruption of third molars, that sort of thing. We can see— easily in the skeletons, but things that are changing post-adulthood are, you know, more subtle changes of the ribs of the pelvis that aren't, that didn't survive due to the soil and time. But, okay. um, All right. I, we won't pin you down, but can can you give us a, a guesstimate on what it might be done? Uh, our, in, our preliminary analysis will will be done and we'll have a report in January made available to... In January 2023? Uh, uh, yes, to, to um, SCIA and the Battleground Trust and then, or in conjunction with them. And then um, ongoing analyses might be things like isotopic studies to ter- determine maybe a, a place of birth of an individual and the DNA possibilities will be ongoing following that. And I'll let Steve talk about the time frame for, you know, a, a publication or... or Right. Uh, we have to have all the preliminary work done in order for the uh, reburial ceremony to occur in April. After that, we'll be compiling a report as Bill's preliminary report in January would simply be the age sexing and preliminary kind of results. And then we'll be carrying out throughout the year additional studies, compiling a report to Doug. Our deadline for that is December, a year from now. Uh, after that, uh, we will continue to be doing uh, comparative studies. There is currently a project going on in uh, New Jersey at the Red Bank Battlefield where uh, uh, I think in the neighborhood of 15 Hessian soldiers were found in a mass grave. And my colleague Wade Katz up there is doing that work, and we've been in touch, and we've been comparing notes about uh, the remains, and we'll be doing lots of work, uh, continuing on, and eventually we'll be coming out with a book that will have all of this summarized in a popular, more fewer tables and a lot more interesting things to occur and in, in a complete history of the battle and that sort of thing. Well, there is a site in Charleston, and I can give you a better reference than what I'm going to put out now because it was published in a book, uh, The Low Country at High Tide, uh, Miss Butler's book, and she talks about one there was a quote from a 19th century newspaper, pre-Civil War, about Mr. So-and-so's garden's going to be so good because of the topsoil. And also, 800 Waldeckers, Hessians, and British were buried at that oh, site. Goodness. I mean, I, I don't know. It just sounded like fascinating to me. Yes. Uh, we have to be cautious. Um, the reason we recovered these individuals because they were in danger of being disturbed. They had already been disturbed. Uh, so it's not really fashionable nowadays to be just simply recovering burials. If those individuals were very deeply and are not in any danger, uh, we would recommend not doing that. Okay. We had to do that back in, uh, you may remember back in the early 90s, late 1980s, we recovered soldiers from the 55th Massachusetts. That they were on Folly Island. 
they were about to be completely destroyed by uh, de uh, housing development. So they were recovered and reburied in Beaufort. But generally speaking, we, we do not like to recover human okay. remains. Gentlemen, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Doug Bostick from the South Carolina Battleground Trust, Steve Smith from USC's Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, and Bill Stevens, who is Deputy Coroner for Richland County and a forensic anthropologist. We're talking about remains found on 18th century battlefield outside of Camden. Okay, Doug, the Battleground Trust is sponsoring the reburial. First of all, why, why April and not the anniversary of the battle? Well, I had that, Walter, that exact question was posed to me by a senior editor at National Geographic who's covering this project. And I asked her, had she ever been to South Carolina in the month of August? And uh, she said no, and I said, well, it's, it's an experience you might not relish. Uh, so we just felt like that um, I, I love the poetry of the reinterment um, on the battlefield anniversary, but for the amount of people that we believe will turn out for this event, it would probably just be uncomfortable to do it then. And so we selected a date that was, frankly, an open date on the Camden calendar. It's after Easter, after the Cup, uh, after the Boykin trial. And so it was an open date on the Camden calendar, and, and we landed on that thinking that um, weather and temperature would be good and uh, seemed like a logical time to do this. All right. Can you give us any preliminary information on the ceremony that you've got planned? Yes, sir. Um, we um, plan to move the bodies from Columbia back to Camden on Thursday, April 20. We'll be pausing for a short ceremony at the National Cemetery of Fort Jackson to allow the soldiers of Fort Jackson to honor and recognize the remains of these soldiers. And then we'll continue on a route, not on the interstate, but on the back road passing by the public schools uh, between Columbia and Camden to allow the schools to pay their respects. And then the bodies will eventually get their way to uh, the historic Camden Foundation, the Cornwallis House, where they'll lie in state until Saturday morning. Uh, the U.S. Army Old Guard unit, which is the only active duty military unit authorized to wear colonial uniforms, they're coming with their color guard and 26-member band and their demonstration platoon. And so we're organizing now an honor guard that'll be with the bodies as they lie in state from Thursday to Saturday. And then the actual funeral service will be Saturday morning on the 22nd of April at Bethesda Presbyterian. And we're going to be planning a joint Anglican Presbyterian service that'll be at Bethesda where, of course, Baron DeKalb is buried. Yeah. And we think that it has some poetry to it to hold the funeral service there. The bodies will be transported from historic Camden to Bethesda on horse-drawn caissons uh, oh. in a military procession. And then after the funeral service is done, the bodies will be transported to the Camden battlefield. There'll be a separate secular ceremony on the battlefield itself. And then... The 14 bodies will be dispersed across the battlefield to be buried in the locations where they were first found. So the bodies will be returned to the exact location where the bodies were recovered. And, um, and that'll conclude on Saturday afternoon. Okay, so it's really going to be a full, a full day. It is. And we're in the midst of contacting and inviting the British to participate, as well as the uh, embassy attaches for the French and the German, uh, all of whom had a part in this battle. We were coordinating the burial details with both Fort Jackson and the South Carolina National Guard, but we're also in, com in conversation with the Secretary of the Army's office uh, to coordinate at that level. We've um, briefed the governor on the events coming up, as well as Congressman Clyburn's office and the balance of the South Carolina delegation 
I mentioned Congressman Fiburn in particular just because he had a, has a background as a history teacher. And, uh, of course, all this vitally interests Congressman Flyburn. Um, so we want it to be a grand event to honor uh, and celebrate the service of these soldiers that fell in this battle and to reinter them in a situation that will protect them in perpetuity. Well, it, it sounds impressive. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that Baron de Cobb, the, the German uh, hero, was buried at, at Bethesda, and Robert Mills designed his monument there at the at the Bethesda Presbyterian Church. The- no, I, and, and few people really um, outside of South Carolina understand the impact of Robert Mills. He designed a lot of the courthouses and a number of monuments within South Carolina, but he also did a lot of work in Washington, D.C., for which he's maybe more famous. Uh, but he designed that monument to Baron de Cab at Bethesda Presbyterian. Architectural historians talk about Mills had phases. You know, Picasso had a blue phase, whatever. Well, Mills had an Egyptian phase. He designed two monuments in South Carolina that are plinths or needles, obelisks. One is the Maxi Monument to the first president of the South Carolina College, which is in the center of the horseshoe. The other is the DeKalb Monument at Bethesda Presbyterian Church. And, of course, then he goes to Washington, and he does the big thing with the Washington Monument. Yes, sir. So, and, and a lot of people don't recognize the fact that um, Baron DeKalb was a mentor to Lafayette. And when Lafayette landed in America, first place he set foot was in Georgetown. And, uh, and it's accompanied by Baron DeKalb. And, of course, they both find their way to Washington and then Washington makes them both general officers in the uh, American Army, um, and and they, unfortunately for DeKalb, found much different paths, and DeKalb was mortally wounded in the Battle of Camden. All right, you mentioned the National Geographic. What's their interest in this? Well, they became interested early on. We reached out to a number of national media outlets to encourage their coverage of this project. And National Geographic did decide to cover it. Uh, they'll cover it start to finish, uh, including the reinterment ceremonies in April. So they have had a robust response to their coverage thus far. But we're also in conversation with uh, broadcast media on a national level. And I'll say that the day we issued the press release, which we did poetically on Veterans Day, the Camden paper published an article. The Post and Courier did a digital article that day and did a follow-up print article on Saturday. And then we had uh, four television stations, three in Columbia and one in Spartanburg, reach out asking for a press conference. So we, we hurriedly put one together in Camden at 1 p.m. on that Friday. All four stations covered it together. They broadcast in Columbia and Spartanburg, but they uploaded those interviews to the, their national network, who then downloaded it to affiliates all over the United States. So uh, that weekend, the Camden story was told across the country and even uh, made the paper the Daily News in London. Um, so it's a story of a lot of interest. The Camden battle is a, a big time story though sadly an American defeat. But, you know, if people in Camden will often say that we're not for the debacle at Camden, then we perhaps do not get green as the Southern commander, which led to the eventual evacuation of South Carolina. Well, we won't all go that far, but that's... (laughs) Hey, uh, (laughs) uh, Camden was important, but of course, until green got here... The important campaigns were actually done by the partisans in the northern districts, beginning with Hook's defeat to Kings Mountain. And except for the so-called second battle at Hobkirk Hill, the other battle at Camden and Fishing Creek, they were all American partisan victories. And, of course, Green knew how to use the partisans when he, when he got here, unlike Gates, who was very dismissive of, uh, in fact, he was very dismissive of Marion's group. And uh, Steve, you know that story. Well, Marion was with uh, Gates on the trip down. He actually, after the fall of Charleston, he 
uh, made his way north. He uh, met up with DeKalb. DeKalb sent him and his less than 20 men to Coles Bridge uh, in North Carolina. And then uh, Marion joined Gates's march uh, at Max Ferry and traveled with him. And the very night that the uh, American troops headed south towards Camden, he was dismissed and sent to uh, the Low Country with the idea of Gates was very confident that if he met the, the British, he would be able to defeat them. They would be forced back to Charleston. So he sent uh, Marion to Witherspoon's Ferry to meet up with the Williamsburg Militia and the Marion County District Militia and told them to burn all the boats on the Santee River so that when the British retreated out of Camden, they would come up against the Santee and be without uh, transport across the river, and he'd be able to trap them up on the river. didn't play out that way. Marion left uh, that evening and actually heard the battle uh, begin at 2 a.m., and then the cannons firing. Well, Marion had also agreed with DeKalb that they should have taken a different route. Yes. But Thomas Sumter liked to be friendly to the big general, said, oh, no, sir, you're exactly right. We'll take that short (laughs) route. So. And Marion did not burn all those boats. No. So anyway, that's that. That's another story. And of course, there are other stories about Gates being very dismissive of Marion because of the composition of his band, which included free persons of color and Catawba Indians. That was just too much for the Gates. Was kind of a pompous. <laughs> well, he was a British trained officer, and he was probably the only British trained officer very few in the American ranks, and he I suppose he felt that he knew what he was doing. Well, history, <laughs> history had a, has, a, has a different story for General Gates. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've got about five minutes maybe. Doug, any comments you would like to make about what the trust is doing now or going to be doing in the future? Well, the, this burial project, as you'd imagine, is occupying a lot of our time at the moment, but um, we're rapidly uh, expanding the holdings on the Liberty Trail. We've uh, under contract and will close later this calendar year on uh, the Battle of Hammond Store, and we've added another property to Utah Springs as part of the British camp uh, there at the end of the battle. And we're pursuing opportunities uh, in Chester County and uh, elsewhere in Orangeburg County on different sites, as well as Charleston County. And and the biggest acquisition still to come is uh, we have under contract to preserve the first site at Fort Johnson on James Island on Charleston Harbor. Okay. So we're very pleased and excited with that project. All right. Bill, what are your plans after this? You're going to be part of this big story history, your day-to-day job, how's that going to compare? Oh, well, we we assist, you know, we do routine forensic work, identification, recovery, and uh, we're often um, permitted to assist other counties, other agencies, and the state in matters which may be more like this historical. And it, um, I see we've already demonstrated in the field, we've come up with a great collaborative team approach with you know, his, historians, archaeologists, and biological anthropologists working together, and it's uh, going forward. I think it'll it'll okay. contribute in a in a great way. It's remarkable to be a, a part of it. Great great honor. So. Okay, um, and Steve, you've always got a, a project in mind. What's your What's your next one? Oh boy, been asked to go to a couple of other battlefields, uh, and we're actually thinking about going back to Snow's Island once again. And Try to find Marion's camp on Snows Island. Uh, I would like to uh, mention that this project in the field has been uh, greatly enhanced by a, a group of organizations. I don't want to leave out uh, people who are part of this whole thing. And one of those big organizations was the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. They provided uh, personnel and equipment to make this happen. A historic Camden Foundation also were partners in this project. Uh, we've had volunteers from the private sector among archaeologists who have volunteered to do the work. So it was um, an amazing cooperative effort. I wouldn't want to give anyone the impression that it was just uh, 
the Institute of Archaeology in, in Richland County. Uh, we no. did our part, but there was a, a big group effort to get this thing done. Well, that that is a good story, and I, I appreciate your mentioning that. Uh, Steve Smith, Bill Stevens, and Doug Bostick, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. The discovery of the remains of these Revolutionary War soldiers is significant, not just because they're there, but because with modern technology, what can be gleaned about who were these young men, and they were young men, and possibly where they were from. And the next step, of course, is the reinterment of these remains with full military honors. The Battle of Camden was an important moment in the history of the American Revolution in South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.